Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where it's our goal to bring together a bunch of improvement nerds in order to start and improve evolution by providing people with a new tool set, a new skill set, and a new mindset. We're grateful that you're spending time with us today. If you enjoy what you hear, please follow our podcast and subscribe because there's sure to be good content that occurs in these conversations as we nerd out. Hey, Improvement Nerds, this is Tom, back with another episode of the Improvement Nerds podcast. Today, I'm welcoming special guest Shelly Brown. Shelly Brown and I connected through the LinkedIn community and became immediate friends. In this episode, I am showcasing Shelly and the very important topic of practicing mindfulness. Shelly is the founder of ROI Mindfulness, an organization that works with industry and individuals to teach them the skills that they need to practice and benefit from the merits of mindfulness. For Shelly, work is an important part of an individual's life. If you look at her website, which is linked in our show notes, and follow her on social media, you'll see Shelly often comment about the importance of mindfulness and that it allows you not to just improve things for yourself, but it allows you to show up better for others. Hey, Improvement Nerds, this is Tom West. I'm back with another episode, and today I have an exciting guest that I've met through the social media activities, specifically following this person's post and their stories and the energy they're putting out into the universe during this COVID uncertainty. So um, I found this individual, I loved everything she was doing, and I just kind of felt compelled to reach out and to get to to know her. So I, I reached out to a mutual friend, Jason Barnaby, who knew her and asked for the introduction. And as I got to know this individual, uh, I was just counting my blessings and and really thankful that she's come to my life because she's a very energetic person. She, But she doesn't come off as like overly energetic, but subtle in a way where it's a guiding light. And I think as you guys listen to her speak, you're going to agree that that she's a gem. So ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Shelly Brown to the Improvement Nerds podcast. Welcome, Shelly. Thank you so much. I felt like my heart expand with that introduction and my eyes actually welled up. Thank you so much. What an honor to be here with you. Yeah. And you're wearing a cute little shirt with a heart on it. And I saw it grow three times. (laughs) It's a paper heart. And I, I started wearing this a few months ago, actually. I'm all about heart and leading with heart and wearing your heart on your sleeve. So this is actually paper. What an awesome icon. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, share a little bit uh, about your background. In our prep for this episode, you talked a little bit about your journey as an individual and how you came into mindfulness and that your avenue there wasn't through necessarily research or even your education, but through life experiences where you realized the impact this that this can have. And uh, it's transformed you, and it sounds like because of that, now you're sharing that story and you're encouraging others. So tell us a little bit about you before we jump into the episode and, and start nerding out together. So who's Shelly? Thank you so much, Tom. So I'd like to say that I come from a worried people and that these people taught me how to go from zero to catastrophe in seconds. And so it's kind of like I learned that behavior. I don't believe that anybody's born worrying, 
but I learned, I learned that everything was to be feared. Everything was unsafe. Everything was negative. Everything was stressful and to just be in fear and worry and stress. And so I adopted this behavior from a young age and it played out in various ways throughout my life. And in adulthood, in the corporate world, I noticed that it came out in some good ways, like really high energy. And in order to sort of reel that kind of stress energy in, I did a lot of athletics. I taught spin classes. I ran marathons and ultra marathons. And as my career evolved, the responsibilities also grew. And also, I started working for software companies where it's kind of like you become data, you become a KPI, you become a measurement because everything becomes measured, right? So for me, if I wasn't at the top, I was on the bottom. There was no gray area there. And every day just felt really, really stressful. And with my energy and that stress energy, I created lots and lots of velocity for myself. I ran like crazy and ultimately my vertebrae collapsed, um, crushing the nerves down my leg. And so when one kind of fell swoop, the thing that I used not only to help mitigate the stress, but also the things that I used as an anchor to define me were gone. The ability to run, even to walk, my job, the person that I was dating literally had his own journey into addiction, rehoming my dog, living in a place where I literally knew nobody, and just having to go from not only stress, but to this fight or flight, to this complete amygdala hijack. And fast forward a few years later, I had a very successful surgery after about a year and a half of this pain. And I noticed that when I would start a new job, when I was ready to go back to work, I was completely freaked out, flipped out and in stress. And I didn't know what was going on. I kind of blamed the culture. I'd get a new job. Same thing would happen. And ultimately, I was put on PIP twice and then fired. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story and being vulnerable with us. And some of the things you called out, I'm sure individuals can relate to. So within the workplace, you know, you were goal-oriented. And the organization had certain focuses that they were measuring, and those became your priorities. And you really only paid attention on those things, and you went after them with vigor, and you spent a lot of time and energy on there. And that, because that became so much of your focus, oftentimes individuals who, you know, are in that process and are being promoted because they're successful, you know, they're losing track of who they really are because the focus is on outcomes and it's not really, you don't have the opportunity to focus on the individuals around you or the team that you're responsible for leading because the organization is focusing so much on the data and therefore you as a leader, you focus there too. So I think a lot of individuals do find themselves in that situation. I don't know the research, but as I learned a little bit about emotional intelligence, I had heard that individuals, the further that they move up within an organization, the challenges of maintaining a strong emotional intelligence become a lot harder. So 
So you kind of sharing that, hey, like I was on this roller coaster and I was being promoted and goals were being asked of me. And along the way, I kind of lost a sense of who I was. I think people can relate to that. And the way you coped with that was by staying busy. And I have a friend, Rachel Pritz, who uh, has reminded us, it's a Bill Gates quote, and I think even Warren Buffett shared it, that busy is the new stupid. And that a lot of times individuals are filling up their calendars and their days and their weeks and staying busy, 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 and wearing that has a badge of honor. And she said, what reality is, is that busy is just a distraction. Oftentimes it's a coping mechanism for something that's underlying. And you you said that too. So in your introduction, uh, I think you hit on some things that others could definitely relate to. And I'm so glad that you're on this episode to share your story, not just where you were or the events that woke you up to um, the need to, the need to change, but now how you have changed as a result. So um, let's kind of you know move the conversation to what what nerds you out. <laughs> What nerds me out? So mindfulness nerds me out and all the, all the nuances of the practice. I feel like you never arrive. Nobody ever gets a certificate saying I'm mindful. So it's, it's constantly noticing my own practice and consuming as much information as possible. And I didn't start out the Buddhism route. I came to it through basically nervous breakdown. And so now I'm actually even more interested in, in the history of it. My practice is very secular. I invite people to this practice in the most inclusive, approachable way possible because people a lot of people don't know what it is and they think that it's something it's not. But in any event, I love learning more and more and more and reading and consuming so much as well as deepening, deepening my practice and then helping people understand what it is and how they can cultivate a practice for themselves. I love that. That's to me, there's so many different ways that individuals are interpreting this idea of being a nerd. And, you know, I had one guest. Um, that will be airing soon. It was Dane Delosier of an organization that's called Enable, and they have a process that helps individuals who are in the operational capacity understand what what they should be focusing on and communicating openly and talking about ways to get there. So it's inspiring innovation and it's building trust. So when I celebrated them coming onto my episode and recording, you know, I, I called out that, you know, I've just met with two improvement nerds. And he said, if, if, if nerd means an individual who invests in something that they're really passionate about and does that not to better themselves, but does it to better others, then yes, Tom, thank you. I am a nerd. And in some ways, that definition of being a nerd fits exactly with what you were just saying is you've become a student of this. So if individuals want to be a nerd about anything, you can't do it. Um, just by phoning it in, you got to show up, you got to dive in and you got to be curious. So you've done that. And then oftentimes the other part is what's motivating the individual is not really service of self, but service for others. And in what you just shared, those two things totally fit with the journey that you're on. <laughs> Tom, nobody cares if you're mindful. I mean, nobody cares if you, if you're calm I shouldn't say nobody cares if you're mindful. Nobody cares if you're calm or you've cultivated, you know, the ability to have ease in your life. 
we practice mindfulness so that we show up better for other people. So it's actually a practice of, of serving others by being able to show up at your best, to show up present, to show up with equanimity, to notice judgment, to practice mindful listening, to open up your heart to compassion, and to really, really have a sense of another, as well as your own sense of your self-awareness in your interactions with others. Thank you for for that. So another thing we talked about when you and I got to know each other was this vicious cycle or this chaos, or a lot of people call it the cyclone or the whirlwind of everyday life that is just moving in a constant and volatile fashion, that it's easy to cause individuals to feel overwhelmed or uncertain or fearful. And mindfulness in some ways allows the slow, the slowing of that spin so that you can assess and be more present and show up and be more intentional in in that environment and i think doing that allows you to have a greater impact not just in controlling that situation or trying to um, not allow that situation to control you but you show up in a way that others can look to and say that i i if they can do that i can do that too so in some ways you're role modeling that to others don't let the vicious cycle of life sweep you up and take you down the road, you know, stand strong in it and be mindful and assess what, what reality is and try to influence it in a way where those outcomes are better than if you just ran from it and feared it. Cause it, those things that you flee from, they'll show up again and again and again. If you, if you don't stay steadfast in that storm, you may get away from it by fleeing that initial time, but it's going to show up again in your life. And I think you saying, hey, has been mindful, fight it, fight it right then and there the best that you can. And you may not overcome it, but you're going to learn something new. And the next time you have to face it, you're going to be slightly better at facing it than you would have if you just ran from it. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I totally agree. And what I will say is the world doesn't sweep us up. It's the space in between our ears that sweeps us up. Life is at a more faster pace than it ever was. Our attention span is has decreased on average to about nine seconds. That's the same as goldfish, by the way. And so what really is happening is there's a lot more vying for our attention But what's happening is our rapid thinking because of the velocity of life. It's it's the fear, the regret, the worry, the remorse, the, you know, autopilot trying to multitask when we really can't. Our minds can only focus on one thing at a time. And so the distraction or what the Buddhists refer to as the sufferings come from it will take the current situation as an example. There is there is real pain in this world. This current situation is pain. And so there's three different kinds of distractions or suffering. One is when we really are saying that what's happening is is I can't be I can't be okay with what it is. So we argue, we complain, we worry, we're in fear. So it's like anything but this situation. And we can't be present for what it is because we're arguing with reality. 
And then it's the, I'll be happy when. So it's thinking about what can happen in the future that will make us have peace or make us be happy. You know, I'll be happy when this is over. I'll be happy when I can go back to my job. And so we make our joy, our happiness contingent on something that we have absolutely no control over. Or we just say, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to numb out. I'm going to drink. I'm going to eat. I'm going to scroll through all the social media, Instagram, and just not think about anything and stay in this autopilot mode of not really living. And so that's what's happening with our minds. We're in judgment. We're in shooting. I shouldn't do that. I should have ate that. I shouldn't have said that. I should work longer. I shouldn't log out yet, you know, whatever. So it's just this constant noise in the brain. And so what mindfulness invites us to do is, is practice the noticing muscle, the mental workout, the mental gym of our brain, not to shut our brains down, not to overcome and not to fight, but to notice when our mind has drifted and practice our noticing muscle to bring it back right here now. Yeah, I I think that is really important information to share with listeners is that as they encounter these events that they're going to have these responses and you know these responses they are in some ways your brain thinking it's keeping you safe and giving you distractions or routines or habits that mask the suffering um and i think some of this is beliefs that are formed over time so you tell yourself stories and it's how you cope, and you know this is ways that you fit in so that you don't stand out, so you're not being rejected or you know feeling judged. So you know, in some ways, this part of your brain really is trying to keep you safe, and in some ways, it's not. So you have to have that awareness that this is my subconscious. I'm not really thinking. This is just a reptilian response or something um, that was important for society at some point in time where risk were higher, but now those things really aren't necessary. And in fact, being more present and doing more present thinking is necessary. So they have to be aware that they're being mentally hijacked and that noticing muscle that you are saying is you, you got to have a way to detect, oh my gosh, I'm being mentally hijacked and I'm moving through the motions that I'm not really thinking and I need to have tools that allow me to stop and assess and actually be present with whatever's going on right now. You hit so many really important points. Um, Number one, it is a practice. And I want to also add that a couple of things, mindfulness doesn't get rid of these thoughts. It doesn't get rid of our emotions, our pain, our sadness, our worry, and our fear, but it puts distance in between what we're thinking and how we're reacting to it. It gives us an opportunity to make a choice and also to respond. So it's almost like, I I like to use the example, you're sitting at the kitchen table and maybe you have a screen door and you can actually, you know, see worry knocking at the door and you're like, hey, I see over there, but I don't really want you to come in and have coffee with me, but I see you and I acknowledge you. But the other thing that I was going to say is, You know, we talked about this reptilian brain. The amygdala is the part of our brain when 
we are in a real threat, like a car is coming at us. Immediately, the amygdala sends out messages, and that is response to what we see and what we hear. And the amygdala sends out these messages that cause us sometimes to our heartbeat to beat rapidly, may cause us to shake. And it's basically putting the us into emergency mode, fight or flight. And when we spend time in stress, and it doesn't have to be a spinal injury, it could be like our situation now, we can actually put ourselves into this fight or flight response. And what to me it's like is our wires get crossed. So that what happens is all the stimulus enters us like it's like it's an emergency and it doesn't matter what it is. And so what happens is we can lose the ability to sleep because we're always thinking everything's an emergency. We have uh, emotional imbalance. Maybe we get angry. Maybe we cry. Maybe we just act out. And then, you know, there's just, just a, this reactivity. We have a hard time focusing. And so it's not like keep calm and carry on. It's a physiological response. And mindfulness addresses the physiological component. It's not like watching a million TED Talks, you know, writing down a bunch of affirmations, telling yourself to stop it. Those things don't address the physiology. They address the cognitive, but this is not a cognitive response. The central nervous system is acting like everything is a threatening situation. I think that's really important to say because a lot of people can get into this mode and they're like, what is going on? Why can I not talk myself out of this? Why am I acting this way? And maybe loved ones or colleagues or bosses or managers are like, what the heck is wrong with this person? And they don't really understand that this is a stress response. Yeah. And full transparency, while I was in school, I studied finance. And part of our curriculum was relying on data to analyze and make decisions and to do what you thought was certain. So a lot of my training and and whatnot was highly analytical. And that was my comfort zone. So Interestingly, one of the projects I worked on while in school was around a a medication that was being considered for off-label use to support individuals dealing with anxiety. And, you know, I took my analytical brain to that. I didn't understand anxiety. I had never experienced it for myself. And when I tried to be a problem solver for individuals who were experiencing anxiety, I really lacked empathy for them. And in some ways, to be honest, I judged them. And in the presentation, you know, as a finance individual, I I talked to the demand for this and the amount of sales that this could bring and the growth that it would create. I failed to talk about the amount of good something like that could do because I didn't understand the grip that anxiety has on individuals. And man, I will admit I was a dirtbag and uh, probably never would have realized how wrong I was until I started to experience anxiety for myself. So I think individuals who've never experienced it, one, um, maybe I did have it and I didn't know it and I just ignored it. But when it does occur, it's a wake up call and it provides you the opportunity to really assess how much work you've done on you and how 
mentally able you are to endure suffering and what what you want to do in those moments. So for me, I had similar kind of events where my normal changed and I I made the decision to change my normal. I know a lot of individuals right now and in your story, your normal changed in an event that was out of your control. So I think a lot of individuals right now are feeling helpless. But nonetheless, a catalytic event has happened, whether by choice you made the decision to change yourself or the change has happened to you in some ways. But as this happens, it's going to cause emotions. And the, the worst thing you can do with those emotions is to pretend they don't exist. And I think in your story, I want to revisit it because you said in our prep that the emotions you experienced in your event when you had your spinal injury was very overwhelming. And now looking back on it, you say it was the grace of God. It was an event that was meant to happen. And I want to revisit that and ask you, so why is this important to you? How did this all happen? Talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that wake-up call. Gosh, you just said a whole lot of stuff. And I apologize because my dog is scratching under the bed. I'm not sure the mic is picking it up. It's kind of burrowing. You know, my heart like hurt for a second there. You were talking about your experience with not really knowing much about anxiety. And a lot of people don't recognize the symptoms of somebody struggling with anxiety. And it's not it's not pretty. And so if you don't know and you see somebody who's struggling with it, you can be like, what is wrong with this person? Why can't they deal? And in the workplace, it could be an employee who's asking you the same question over and over again. You know, it could be somebody who who you see being emotional at work. The chances are that they're struggling with with fear or anxiety. It it looks a number of different ways. And I think that there's a real call for us to have an understanding about what this looks like, because we all bring things to the party, to our work party. And work isn't the cause. We're the whole human integrated being. And so I think it's super important, especially with the statistics of anxiety that there are now huge, huge, huge numbers. And with what we're going through now, this is going to, this is going to reverberate in a lot of people who may not know that this is what's happening, this stress and anxiety that they're experiencing because of what we're going through in our current world situation. So, you know, I really appreciate that. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you have an appreciation for what it is. And I'll also in candor tell you that as somebody who did get prescribed anti-anxiety and stuff, mine broke through it. It didn't help at all. So I just wanted to share that. But so I really, when I had my, my spinal injury, I went through a year and a half of what I call extreme suffering. So we were talking before the podcast that pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. So pain is the actual injury of my spine. The suffering are the thoughts. This this is the worst thing that could ever happen. I am never going to get out of pain again. This pain is the worst pain ever. It is 
putting the suffering on steroids. So pain is bad enough, but then our thoughts make it a hundred million times worse. And so by going through this experience, the biggest lesson that I can reflect on is the notion of impermanence, that nothing lasts forever. And that we can actually notice throughout the day, even now, even today, hour by hour, even moment by moment, you can be like, this is the, the worst experience ever. And then an hour later, smiling because your dog is digging a hole under the bed. So when we can notice the changing nature of everything, impermanence, not needing an anchor to things that we have no control over, allowing ourselves to sort of float in uncertainty is the biggest gift that we can have through anything. I, I believe. And so that's the biggest gift that I learned from what I went through. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that story and for kind of raising awareness that there is a stigma around anxiety and individuals who haven't wrestled with it oftentimes don't understand it. And I'll admit, you know, um, has, has my wife and I, we started our relationship and I was in business school and spending a lot of time and energy there in some ways i focused on my own development that i didn't really focus on her and i's development and she had anxiety during that time period and she still has it today but i showed up in that situation kind of just telling her what to do and you know thinking i was um self-righteous in some ways that i never had it and you can overcome anything if you put your mind to it and like I owe her a big apology. I owe individuals who suffer with anxiety a big apology because that's oftentimes how individuals perceive it as that person's weak or what's going on with them. They just need to, you know, show up and, and, you know, buckle up or whatever and toughen up. But that's really not the response that we need to have for each other. We need to practice empathy and be present with them and be asking what what we can do to serve that individual who's experiencing that event. And I think that's going to strengthen us as individuals, one, because it's the harder thing to do to to be present in that uncomfort and sit with someone who's experiencing chaos. Yeah. So I'm not not really proud of that, but um, I flee from being there with that person because I didn't understand, I plead being there with my wife because I didn't understand it. And now, you know, like I have that, that opportunity to change my behaviors. Like none of us are perfect. And I'm sure individuals listening to this have probably reacted to others situations where they were feeling anxious the same way. And because it's easier and more comfortable to um, perceive that person as weak and it's harder to actually realize that person is needing help and to be the one that shows up and to be the one who offers help in the way that that person can receive it instead of let's hurry up and move past this or your anxiety is making me uncomfortable. And we have to, as people realize that it's not about us, it's really about that person. And if we, if we want anxiety to um, lessen its grip on us as a society, we have to start showing up to, 
in different ways for each other. So I think mindfulness is another way that we can do that. Because I, in those situations, I wasn't practicing mindfulness. I was fearful for what she was experiencing. I was afraid I couldn't help her. And so every time she had those events, I ran from it. And had I known more about anxiety and known more about mindfulness, I would have had the tools to actually show up for her. And I think this, this mindfulness can allow us to do so many great things for each other. And um, that's why I'm so excited to have you on my episode. So th- thank you for letting me share that. Um, I'm glad I kept it together because it's not, this is not an easy thing to talk about because it's uh, ill-defined, it's fuzzy, it's not concrete. And people who grew up in an analytical world and their whole world has always been fact or data or information. Once they move into this emotional world, which is fuzzy and ill-defined and very raw, like analytical people just freak out. They don't know what to do in these situations. So for one, I, I'm highly analytical and I had to strengthen my emotional muscle muscles and I'm still strengthening my emotional muscles. So I, I think if, if anything, and why I'm sharing this is I hope individuals can realize that we're not supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to be human. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you said so much. And first of all, thank you for your compassion. You know, I mean, compassion is really noticing, noticing the, the suffering of another and having the intention and taking action to try to relieve that, that suffering. One thing I'd like to invite you to, I know you have some regret and remorse and you know, maybe, maybe letting go of that self-judgment because we don't know what we don't know at the time. And then we get to learn. So that's the gratitude is, oh, I learned, I, I have an awareness now, you know, and holding space for your own self, because I really do appreciate and honor you for opening up in that way. And another important point that you really brought up is People don't know what this mindfulness stuff is. They think it's weird. They think it's woo-woo. Everybody thinks mindfulness is meditation. Meditation is the formal practice. And guess what? If you don't like the word meditation, call it awareness training. Call it your mental gym. Call it the noticing workout. Call it attention, badass attention warrior training. It doesn't have to be called mindfulness. Believe me, when I came to the practice, I was like, that's for tea drinking yogis. You know, do I have to go like this? Do I have to go like that? Do I have to go om? You know, I just thought it was weird. Is my third eye going to open? Because I didn't know what it, what it is. And it's literally, when we think about the components of well-being, everybody knows what going to the gym is for. Going to the gym is so, you know, fitness is so that you can work out because exercise is to fitness, the same as what meditation is to mindfulness. And I know we're going to get into this. Besides meditation, which I truly think is important, again, call it whatever you want. It's very, very important because it is practicing that noticing muscle. And if you can do it five minutes a day and then build up, That is the workout. That is the bicep curl for the brain. But then there are other practical practices of the informal practice of mindfulness. So the formal is meditation. The informal is mindfulness that you can practice all day long, whether it's setting a notification on your smartphone to take four deep breaths in a minute 
And what happens is we all hold energy in different parts of our body. And when we're stressed, Tom, where do you hold it? In your chest, in your head, do you shake? Uh, Thank you for that. So your body will react in a way. And so many people have these reactions and they don't really know them. So for me, when I'm feeling stress and and whatnot, I clench my fist. It's so, and I didn't, I didn't know that until someone said, I want you in meditating to think about something you're angry about and listen to what your body does and understand that that's the trigger or an indication that you're experiencing stress. And I never was awake to the stress I was experiencing. So, um, you know, that it's going to show up in, um, a physical manifestation in some ways and knowing what that is, like my spine kind of straightens up a little bit. I put my shoulders back and I start to clench my hands. Like I'm ready to fight. And I'm a lover. Like if, if I ever had to fight, it wouldn't be a short round um, because I'm not built for scrappiness. So yes, your body embodies you every every the body sensations are the first thing before we even have thoughts. So a couple things. If you're feeling stressed and you stand up and notice your feet on the ground, that's a practice you can do. And then Tom, take your fist like this and clench it really hard. And now breathe in and then take a long, slow exhale out. What does your fist want to do? It lessens. It wants to open and yeah. Okay. The the other thing you said is a lot of people confuse physical wellness with overall and complete wellness. So you were saying uh, your background as an endurance athlete, you've done many marathons, you've done ultras, you've done halves, you were physically fit. And it's funny because I was, I am, I'm a endurance junkie myself. In my events of anxiety happened closely on the heels of finishing two Ironman races and a half marathon within 30 days. So um, low blood pressure, great, you know, physical endurance. And I thought, you know, like, oh, I'm in good health. And then shortly after I completed my race in April, I was in the emergency room experiencing anxiety. And it felt like I was drowning. I, I felt like there was a weight on my chest and everything I tried failed to allow me to uh, stabilize. So it just became this vicious cycle and I was experiencing a spin out and never having experienced it before. Um, I had, you know, to go to the emergency room to just, you know, answer questions to, to ensure that there wasn't something really, really bad going on. And it wasn't, it was, you know, that mental hijacking, which was going on. And I just didn't know it because I'd never experienced it before. But coming out of that emergency room, I was um, awakened to that I had worked out in the gym and on my bike and logging the miles and I was physically fit. And I thought because I endured those two races that I had mental toughness because you don't run and complete a 140 mile race without having the headspace to stay there and to suffer a little bit. But I, as I experienced anxiety, I realized that the ability to endure in a physical way is, is not really translated into the ability to endure in a mental way. And I did not challenge myself and I had never in my life exercised my mind. 
in the way that I needed to, to do mindfulness in a way to where um, it allowed me to grow that muscle. So I think what you were saying is a lot of individuals invest in this physical fitness to be well, and almost no one, I definitely didn't, invest in this emotional fitness to be well. That's amazing. Let me ask you this. Have you ever gone for a run and then checked your email and got a not such a good email and that stress came back right away? I believe that physical fitness is super important, but physical fitness is not a sustainable way throughout the day to, to for me, maybe for some people, to, to stay in this space of, of equanimity. And the reason is... When you're an endurance athlete, there's an element of striving. You are striving. Meditation, one of the attitudes we bring is non-striving. If you're in a meditation and you are the anchor of, of your meditation is the breath, you're not squeezing it. You're gently with kindness and gentleness and non-judgment. So your anchor is the breath. You notice your mind go, goes off without judgment and with kindness and gentleness, you come back to the breath. That is not like endurance athletics. And then there's an element of acceptance and non-judgment and trust and kind of a friendliness. You know, you, you run a mile in a race and your time is off. There's a judgment there. So there's a lot of great things about keeping our bodies well. But it's sort of the antithesis, the endurance part, the racing part. There's nothing that's supposed to be efforting about mindfulness and meditation. I, and I don't know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I love that you're saying that is you measure uh, mindfulness in a very different way than you measure uh, physical activity. So you know, performance-driven individuals keeping track of time or where, where did I place or, man, I'm really good at this or today I didn't perform the way I wanted to. And if you take those same tools or rulers, how you measure your physical fitness, and you try to use those rulers to measure your emotional fitness, you're going to be way too harsh on yourself. And in in some ways, you're, what would be, I don't really know what rulers to use because all my rulers have been around my analytical upbringing as a business student and as an athlete. So I was active as an athlete since the time I was seven. I've been running since I was seven years old. So my rulers are all measure this and achieve this. And and so I had to equip myself with new rulers to measure my emotional capabilities. So what are some, I'm trying, I'm having a hard time thinking about the rulers I'm using. We don't measure mindfulness and, and, you know, we use the term measure in a different, in a different way. We use, we actually use the term merits. So you do a meditation, may the merits of this practice benefit all beings. You know, we, we talk about merits. We don't talk about measurement. Nobody's out there going, man, I am the biggest badass meditator. I meditated longer than you. What, what's your meditation time today? (laughs) You know, like we do like, what was your time in that marathon? What was your time with meditation today? And on a scale of one to 10, we don't do that with the practice of mindfulness, but I do, if I can quickly mention some other practices that are super easy, we were talking about the, the, the fist, you know, 
I know a lot of people feel weird when, you know, in the workplace, closing your eyes in front of other people, but yet at the airport, you could have drool coming out of your mouth. And I do like to invite teams to take a moment or a minute when they come into a meeting to come into the present together. And it may just mean looking down. It doesn't have to be a full-on meditation. And if you're working from home, again, setting your iPhone alarm to, to take a few deep breaths, using a trigger, a mindful trigger. Right now, washing your hands is a really good mindful trigger. That means I am only washing my hands. I am using all my senses for this experience in the present of feeling what the water feels like, feeling what my hands feel like touching each other, feeling the temperature, feeling the sensations, and just like taking that minute to just come into the present of that action of washing your hands. Same with mindful meals. We all have to eat. What if we turned off all our devices? What if we came into appreciation of who brought this food to us? How did this food, who grew it? How did it get to the grocery store? What about the preparation, the colors, the sensations of actually the feel of the food, the feel in our mouth, the what it feels like to chew it, what our taste buds are experiencing at the moment, swallowing the food, the sensation of the of pleasant, of having a meal and being able to enjoy. I mean, there's so many different practices that we can do all day long that are not just meditation. I, I think you, for your list of tools, I'm sure is expansive and individuals who want to equip themselves with tools, I'd encourage them to to connect with you and to continue this conversation because we can almost dedicate a full episode to the tools. And the one thing I'll call out that I found to be helpful for me is to um, use prompts and to rely on experts who have shared how they're doing these things and to allow them to to act as my guide. So I'm 37 years old and I didn't have an awareness that I had stress or anxiety or I wasn't willing to accept that I had those things until I was 36. So 36 years of my life, I haven't exercised this muscle, basically. And now, in a short order, I have to uh, understand and appreciate the merits of it. And it's not habit, and it's totally not my routine. And to help make it easier, I rely on guided uh, apps. So I I set um, a reminder, and I'll get up in the morning, and I'll read and I'll be present with every word that I'm reading for five minutes. And so that's one way. Or uh, if I need to go even deeper, if I want to turn the page further and you know be more present in mindfulness, I'll open up an app like Calm or a YouTube video. And it's interesting, in mindfulness, I'm also learning the power of visualization, that if you can see yourself doing something, you are more likely to actually do it. And this was yet another abstract thing for individuals who practice visualization. And I started to do it, and it really has translated into a change in my behaviors. And so between those two, you know, I'm learning and I'm benefiting from the merits, as you say. And the thing is, is I would encourage people to just start doing it and to use whatever resources they have to. Get, get started somewhere and to grow in their appreciation for the practice over time instead of, oh, I can't do that or I'm not going to be any good at it versus let's use whatever tools you have available and let's at least get started 
And by starting, you're going to mature and understand new ways that this could have an impact on your life. And the more and more you do that, the you're going to become a student of it. And I'm on my journey. And I love at the beginning of this, you said no one ever actually arrives and no one becomes a complete master. Even those who've been doing it forever will tell you that there's endless things that they're yet to learn. So basically you're doing this and you're starting your learning journey about who you are and how you interact and show up in the world. Well, the merits of your practice, Tom, are probably being felt by more people than you know. Probably, I can say for sure, to me right now. And I'm sure to your wife and to many others. And again, I think what you really, really drive home is that this is a practice. This is not a one-hit wonder. And I could have thousands of hours in meditation behind under my belt, and I could have a really crazy day where I am thinking, where my mind is thinking more and more and more. Great. I'm a human being. If your mind thinks, that's awesome. The biggest reason that people don't do it is because they think that they're bad at it. They think that they're supposed to clear their mind. There's no such thing as being bad at it. If you think you're supposed to clear your mind, um, the only way you can do that is when you die. And I don't think that anybody really wants that as, you know, to aspire to that through meditation. People say that they are uncomfortable sitting down. Okay, stand up, lay down, walk, walk. You can use your foot, feet as a meditation. The important thing is when I ask people, do they meditate? Oh yeah. I use calm to go to sleep. I use headspace to go to sleep. That's wonderful. And I will also invite people to practice presence. Mindfulness, mindful meditation is about being relaxed, but coming to presence, not falling asleep. I'm happy if you, if you use it to fall asleep, if you need that to fall asleep, good for you. But again, again, the message to drive home is nobody ever arrives and it is a continuous practice, like, like being physically fit. Yes. I've enjoyed this episode so much. Uh, you've allowed me to, to revisit my journey. And I think that's hopefully something that we can do together through this episode is to give individuals uh, acute awareness that, that this is something that maybe they are already doing and to keep doing it or to get started if they have it. And I am thankful that I, I started the journey. Had I not, you know, a conversation like this is definitely something that would have motivated me. It is motivating me to, to, to get um, a, a cadence where the merits are what I focus on. I think that's one of the things that I'm taking away is that I need to stop me- trying to measure it and to just look at the merits of it. And then, um, you know, through that, I, I'm just excited that people like you are out there promoting and showing like, this is how it, it, it can benefit you. So talk to me a little bit about how you are using mindfulness um, has not just your passion, but you're going beyond that. And it's in some ways becoming your profession. So talk to me a little bit as we close this episode out. How are you using mindfulness to help others? Thank you. And it is my profession. (laughs) My business is called ROI Mindfulness, which is real-time observations and insights. And I'm using it. I'm doing workshops in in the workplace. Um, Right now, I'm doing virtual webinars to help invite people to this practice. I never really call myself a teacher because I extend an invitation, and it's really up to each person to RSVP. 
I also speak, so I do keynote speaking. And what I also want to drive home is that if we think that mindfulness is just for being calm, that's like using your smartphone only to make phone calls. Because mindfulness is the foundation of self-awareness. We cannot know how we are being unless we're present. So I bring this practice to leaders and help them understand what self-awareness is how we can practice self-awareness in real time to show up better for each other. I also know wholeheartedly that, that mindfulness helps us open up to compassion. And with engagement being like the number one challenge in organizations, I believe that the ability to be present is the biggest gift we can give to another person. And then also cultivating compassion through, through compassion, awareness of compassion training, awareness of what compassion is, having difficult conversations, learning how to do that without bringing in the emotion. Sorry, I'm going off. But yeah, so I bring this to work teams and leaders and I speak on this as a way to invite people to understand that this is a lot more than just being calm. Yes. In what a way to uh, dedicate yourself in the service of others. And I'm sure it's quite fulfilling. And the message that you've shared on this episode and the message that you share in your workshops and with the organizations that you partner with, um, I hope you know it's having an impact. And I'm so glad that you came on to Improvement Nerds today and you shared your story and you shared your passion and you put it out in the universe not to, you know, increase awareness about who you are, but to increase the awareness around how mindfulness can really uh, be an accelerant in the joy that people have in their lives. And what an awesome message to get out there. And thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing that message. It was such an honor. I've loved it. And I don't want the episode to end, but our friendship won't. So I'm honored. And I thank you so much. Thank you. 